If my numbers are correct, today is officially the halfway point of our 100 days of pursuing Christ together. We've been seeking by faith to integrate biblically derived practices like reading and obeying the Bible, praying and fellowshipping. We've been engaging in these practices because we believe that if we participate in them, again, by faith, we will be placing ourselves in the presence and pathway of God. And any time people walk faithfully and, and intimately with him, along with others, it is impossible not to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So as we engage in the God-given practices through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the godly men and women he saved us to be. It's our purpose to represent him well. However, these, these practices, while powerful, demand sacrifice. They, they cost us something. Reading and listening to scripture demands stamina that builds us up over time. To be faithful in prayer requires us to learn endurance. Truly fellowshipping with others will, will necessitate stepping into others' lives in times of joy and pain. We'll also need to open our lives to input from, from other godly men and women regarding issues that, that we may not want others to see about us. Sure, the, the outcome, right, it, it's worth it, but it's still costly. And, and worthwhile endeavors always are. So today we're, we're going to talk about serving, which will require this, this same perspective. However, if we're honest, we know that serving requires us to come under and, and alongside others by going low. And humbling ourselves isn't our natural bent. Take, for example, like Galatians 5.13, right? Paul writes, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Freedom and, and serving in, in no way kind of coexist in our American minds. Freedom in our thinking, whether we admit it or not, kind of gives license for selfishness. In our flesh, that, that, that old nature, freedom is synonymous with ideas like independence and doing whatever we please and, and personal preference, but rarely serving. In most of the discussions I've heard lately about freedom and, and liberty, seldom is it applied in such a way that we might stoop and serve others like Christ. However, as can be seen in this verse, God connects freedom and service, and he means to. Now, we need to look no further than Jesus. No one has ever had the freedom he possessed, yet what did he do with it? Well, Philippians 4, 7 says that he took the form of a servant. He said to the guys closest to him, I am among you as one who serves. In the life of Jesus, we find the, the freest man who ever lived, and yet he came not to be served, but to serve. This attitude means that we don't need to fear losing our freedom when we follow Jesus. He promised in John 8, if, if you abide in my words, he said to them, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In fact, when we kneel to serve, we find true freedom in being a servant like him. And it's through this attitude and the regular practice of serving that we place ourselves in the presence and pathway of God. <clears throat> now, 
That sounds great, doesn't it? But what does it look like in real life? Well, the good news is that there are several different examples in the life of Christ. And I believe there is no more significant example given than the final days of his life when he, when he washed the feet of his friends. And if we're going to be in the path and presence of God, if, if we're gonna be who God created us to be, we need to grapple with servanthood. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn with me to John 13 and let's explore how we might serve like Jesus, the ultimate servant. There, there are so many events within scripture where I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. And one of them was the last meal that Christ had with some of his closest followers. That night, the, the door was closed and the men he called were alone with him in that upper room. I mean, if you think about it, the world was shut out and kept away from a, a beautiful, solitary moment Jesus shared with these men. It was Passover, so the disciples laying on their sides would have, would have used their left arms to support their heads and their, their right arms to reach to food on the tabletop. And their legs then would have been stretched out away from the table. Now in the translation you use, this story is likely written in the past tense, but in the original language John used to write this gospel, he used the present tense. Interesting, right? It's like John is giving us a play-by-play -play account of the moment. John informs us that Jesus rises from the supper. He lays aside his garments, takes the towel, pours the water into the basin, and washes his disciples' feet. It seems that John wants us to feel like we were, we were there. He wants us to feel like we are the fly on the wall. More than that, however, I think John is creating a bigger picture for us. Jesus' actions at the supper correspond to his actions in his incarnation. It, it was a, a dramatization like of Philippians 2. In the narrative, Jesus leaves his place at the table, similar to the way that Jesus left his place of authority and, and intimate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit in his incarnation. He, he lays aside his outer clothing just as he temporarily laid aside his heavenly glory by sharing in human existence. He takes the servant's towel just as he took the form of a servant. He pours the water into this large bowl just as he would soon pour out his blood on the cross. He washes his disciples' feet just as he cleanses those who come to him by faith from their sin. On this ordained night, Jesus perfectly orchestrated a portrayal of his life from birth to death, and as we will see in a minute, even to resurrection and exaltation. While on this earth, Jesus was engrossed with serving others, and this moment captures it vividly. No wonder Jesus proclaimed, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus moved from disciple to disciple, the room, it must have been awkwardly quiet. They must have looked at each other uncomfortably as they watched him pour water into the basin and they heard Jesus shuffle on his knees from one man to the next. 
One commentator I was reading this week caused me to wonder what he was thinking about each man as he, as he washed their feet. Maybe as he cleaned Matthew's feet, he, he saw him walking right from town to town, delivering the, the good news of the kingdom. And when he came to Judas, as he dried his feet, I thought, these feet will soon walk out the door they just entered into the, the dark night of betrayal. But even worse, right, he, he walks out into perpetual darkness. Then, then look at down here at verse six. He came to Peter, but before he could begin to wash his feet, Peter refused Jesus saying, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, and I love this, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Still being contentious, Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Yet this trans translation is probably, it's not forceful enough. It's perhaps better translated, Lord, you, do you wash my feet? <laughs> no, never, even to eternity, will you, will you wash my feet? This, this act of Jesus was, was absurd to Peter. He knew that, that foot washing was the lowest servants and, and not something to be done by a respected man like Jesus. Not even Hebrew slaves were required to wash people's feet. Jesus, however, he, he knelt before Peter and he was dressed in a servant's towel. The text can't give us Jesus' tone in his answer to Peter, still, I imagine Jesus gently looking into the eyes of Peter and softly answering. Look at verse eight. If I do not wash you, look at this, you have no share with me. To which Peter exclaimed in verse nine, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He was in essence just pleading, then, then wash me head to toe. It was, it was all or nothing all the time for Peter. However, Peter was swinging the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. So Jesus had to explain to him in verses 10 through 11, and look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him that was why he said, not all of you are clean. You see, whenever someone had taken a bath, right, they, they were clean. So when someone then walked to and entered into another home, he only needed his feet washed. That's all that got dirty from house to house. The disciples minus Judas had received a, a thorough cleansing from sin, had, had already been sanctified by Jesus' call on their lives. We're, we're already walking in the pathway and presence of Jesus. Now, all that was required was for Jesus to clean them up from the, the daily pollution of their ongoing struggle with sin. Jesus, though, continued washing each of their feet, and when he'd finished, he, he rose from kneeling, he put back on his outer garments, and he resumed his place at the table. 
It was a beautiful picture of what Hebrews 1.3 says took place after Jesus' death and resurrection. After making this, this purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Like I said a little bit ago, in this stunning, beautiful act, Jesus perfectly staged a portrayal of his whole life from life to death to resurrection to exaltation. As he washed their feet, he depicted the work the Father had sent him to do. In John's recollection of his writing, it was powerful. In verse 12, we learn that he didn't immediately land his point. Instead, when you look down there, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, finally he was ready to land it. He pointedly said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? With the death of Jesus, right, it's, it's only hours away now. The disciples have been arguing about the power each of them might have when, when Jesus established his kingdom. They were, they were fighting for a high position. And with that mindset, no one is disposed to go low like Jesus was modeling. They were instead predisposed to fight for the, the best spot at the table. They wanted the exalted position, but no one wanted to go low by putting on the towel. And Jesus' example would have become a powerful lesson in servanthood. But he really wanted to cement the point. So to make sure his example properly right, solidified in their thinking, Jesus issued a compelling and persuasive challenge in verses 13 through 16. He said to them, you, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus, he, he argued with undeniable logic and an argument from the greater to the lesser. If this example of humble service is appropriate for the greater, right, the Son of God, how much more for the lesser, his disciples? No other gospel writer told of, of this segment of the night except John. However, many years after the event, the aged apostle had it at the forefront of his thinking as he penned the account. And this evening that, that John remembered right before Christ died, the King of Glory was revealed. Not as a conquering hero, but as a servant. Jesus did more than just simply take on flesh. As, as John 13, 3 states, he was, he was given all things into his hands by the Father. And the, the one who had come from God and was going back to God demonstrated what glory looked like by, by lowering himself and washing feet like a servant. Now, to understand the high position that he was coming from, I want to look at verses 18 and 19 so that we can capture the, the grandeur of who this Jesus is who serves us so humbly. He wrote, verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus told them, verse 19, that, that Judas was going to betray him and that when it does right, take place, they may believe that I am he. The literal translation reads that you may believe that I am. The word he is not in the text. This is an allusion to the divine name, Yahweh, the name that, that God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14, the, the great I am. Jesus is saying that his foreknowledge of Judas's betrayal is a pointer to his deity, that he was and is one with Yahweh. And when they remembered that night at a later time, he wanted them to know that I am was in their midst, and he washed their feet. It gets no higher than that. The highest one, the, the uncreated creator and king, stooped to wash feet. The very one who created their feet was now washing them. That was the height from which he came and the depth to which he stooped and the lengths to which he went to love and serve them. That is amazing, but to get the fullness of his glory, it wasn't just that he, he from a high place would then go low and wash the feet of his friends, but also the feet of his enemy. You see, in verse 11, John tells us that Jesus knew who was to betray him. He was fully aware that not all of them, he says in here, were clean. In verse two, if you pop back up there, we learn that right, the devil had, had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, he says in there, to betray him. Yet still, Jesus washed his feet. Judas was among the 12, not because like Jesus messed up by, by choosing him, but because scripture must be fulfilled. There was to be a traitor at his very table, yet this was the plan of God. He, he designed it in eternity past. He, he prophesied it in the Old Testament. John 6, 64 states that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. So the point of verses 18 and 19 wasn't an explanation that there was some mistake in, in Judas's presence in the 12. There wasn't. It was that the God-man knew all along that Judas would betray him. And even still, he, he served him by washing his feet. This radical attitude is what he, he wanted them to grasp and, and then embrace. Think about it for just a second. As cleansed ones who were given the high and privileged status of being accepted into the family of God, Jesus was asking them and us to set aside a high position for a time just as he did. Jesus had given them, verse 15, the example to follow, coming from an elevated position and lowering themselves to demonstrate glory by loving even enemies, just as he had done for them. He was setting in motion an example 
that they were to practice regularly and with a purpose. So what was that purpose? Why does, why does Jesus call us to humbly, radically serve others? Is it to be nice people? Is it merely because that is what we are supposed to do? I believe that there are two compelling reasons this was given to us as a regular practice. First, I want you to see the goal in these 20 verses. I, I think Jesus gave the disciples an example of the kind of people they should be as his representatives. He, he wanted them to represent him well as sent ones. This idea of sending is crucial. In the, in the last verse of the section, verse 20, Jesus told them this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Put another way, he was saying maybe something like this. When I send you out in my name under my authority, as the Father sent me under his authority, you represent me. You're to represent me so that if someone welcomes you and my message, they welcome me. And if they welcome me, they welcome my father. He becomes their father as I've promised. So he prepared them as his disciples and, and authorized them, and again, us, for an unspeakably high calling. There, there isn't a higher calling than to represent Jesus Christ like he modeled for them in verses 2 through 19. That is what this passage is all about. And every time they served, every time we serve, we, we model this powerful reality. We represent the work of Christ every time we serve others with the heart and, and attitude of Jesus. We give an example of what Jesus did that night. And every time we serve by going low like him, we model the more meaningful portrayal of his whole life from birth to life to death to resurrection to exaltation. Our actions of serving others present the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you go home after work, dead tired, and still choose to go low by serving your spouse, your, your family, friends, or neighbors, even those who seem to be your enemies or, or never return the same service in return, it's worth it. Why? Because you give a picture of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ to them. When you use the resources, the, the talents God has entrusted to you wisely and sacrificially to serve the marginalized, even if they take advantage of you, you your actions present the gospel in profound ways. Now, now, second, look at the promise Jesus gives in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed here, as it does in the rest of the Bible, means um, glad, happy, joyful, or probably my favorite, fully satisfied. In other words, Jesus is telling them to realize the fullness of what he was saying. 
if they understood who he is and, and how exalted he truly is, if they grasped the high privilege that it is to be called to represent him in his life and to be led down low to serve with him, they would be rightly and fully satisfied and happy. They would find the most profound joys in life would be found not when they exalted themselves over others, but when they humbly served others like Jesus. I know that some of you may be thinking that you've tried this before and you've ended up miserable. You didn't get the outcome you wanted and this saddened or maybe even annoyed or frustrated you. You weren't, you weren't blessed. However, I would venture to guess that the reason you weren't blessed is because you had the wrong outcome in mind. We can't control how people will respond to our service on behalf of the king, but we can control our attitude. When we serve like Jesus Christ, we may not get the outcome we hoped for from the ones we served. Even Jesus said that he, he longed to gather the people of Jerusalem to him like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but they were not willing. But even when, when others rebuff or, or reject our efforts to love and serve them, we can take comfort in the knowledge that we represented King Jesus well, that he is pleased with our efforts even if no one else is. And if that's our intended outcome, <laughs> we're blessed. Now, let me finish this way. From, from scripture and church history, we learned that the Apostle John took on this, this high calling to go low in serving others. Though he was, he was high as, as one of Jesus' apostles, he became well known for how he sacrificed and served others even at great cost to himself. But just so you know, that's not how he started. As Jesus was returning to Jerusalem to suffer, face trial, and die, John and his, his brother James were, were positioning for greatness in the kingdom they thought Jesus would establish right then. They didn't want to take up the towel. Instead, Mark 10, they wanted to sit one at Jesus' right hand and one at his left in Jesus' glory. To which, and I, I love how Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. They wanted to be great, but Jesus was trying to help them grasp that greatness in his kingdom was different. So he asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or, or he even says in there, to be baptized with the baptism which I'm about to be baptized? Or in other words, are you willing to go low? Are you willing to live lives of, of great sacrifice at immense cost to yourselves? To which, and I'm paraphrasing here, they said, yep, we are. <laughs> Jesus' response to them is powerful. He says in there, the cup that I drink, you're gonna drink. And this baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. He knew they would eventually grasp the greatness of going low to serve. They would see the worth in representing Jesus by, by taking on the towel. But it wouldn't be overnight. 
They would have to learn the secret of Jesus' kingdom that whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant and, and whoever would be first amongst you, he says in there, that he must be your slave, the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is exactly who each of them became. Let me go back to the question I asked from the outset of our 100 days. Who do you want to be in 100 days? Or, or better yet, who do you want to be the rest of your life? This high calling of God that, that Jesus modeled, and as I said when I started, doesn't come naturally to us. It requires intentional practice. Serving like, like Jesus was modeling is something learned through success and, and failure, through the joys of knowing we represented Jesus well and the emptiness we experience when we don't. But we can be transformed to be servants like Christ. We can join Jesus in this high calling. We can be blessed. And to all of you, God bless you.